Hello and welcome to The Menu, Monaco Radio's food and drink programme. I'm your host, Chiara Rimella. Today, once again, we are looking back on this programme's highlights of 2023. We speak to renowned British chef Tom Kerridge about his new book. I think, on, in general, the bigger picture of Great Britain's relationship with pubs is that they are so interwoven into the fabric of society. They're the connective tissue of so many different people's lives and places. Also in the programme, we enjoy a highlight of the culinary scene in Beirut. Plus, we recall an exhibition all about milk in London. At first glance, the topic might seem a strange choice for a major exhibition of artworks and historical artefacts. But it quickly becomes apparent that the white liquid is a rich source of curatorial material and calcium. All that right here on the menu on Monocle Radio. Earlier this year, I sat down with Tom Kerridge, one of Britain's most beloved chefs. His comforting recipe books have long been a staple in households up and down the country, and his cooking often focuses on time-honoured pub classics. After training in high-end kitchens in his early 20s, Kerridge opened his first gastropub, The Hand and Flowers, in Marlow 18 years ago. The eatery, which focuses on fresh ingredients, innovative dishes and a cosy atmosphere, proved immediately popular and the pub has since earned itself two shining Michelin stars. Tom and I discussed the release of his latest cookbook, Pub Kitchen, which takes the most beloved pub menu items and reinvents them for home cooking. From classic bangers and mash to perfectly pink rack of lamb, it's a heartfelt homage to this British institution and the melting pot influences that have shaped it. I started by asking him how pub food has evolved over the years. Changed isn't, I don't think it's the right word. I think it's grown and developed and organically kind of morphed into something that is incredibly beautiful. Ten years ago, the first pub book, proper pub food, was like a really kind of heartfelt, um, it was my first book and it was this kind of connection to British food, British cooking at that point. And there was lots of, I suppose, comforting, homely, familiar dishes that felt very, very wrapped up in British seasonality and ingredients. And over the last 10 years, you're right, you say there that it's kind of that pub scene is is blossomed is probably the best way of describing it. And what we've done and the way that it's grown is now, you know, we used to have select pubs that you would know in your area that would do nice food. Now it's almost pretty much every pub you go to, you can expect a good burger, a, you know, a very nicely made salad, something that on toast or, you know, a simple pie or just, but but you expect it to be done pretty well. You know, things homemade, things aren't coming necessarily now straight from a freezer and dropped in a fryer. It's like, actually, there's a bit of heart and soul and passion that comes into it. But I think most importantly, the way that recipes and dishes have developed and grown is that we're very much like a magpie-style nation in terms of food. We're culturally diverse, eclectically rich in backgrounds and food and continent kind of embracing styles. We, we, we are a nation of people that are experimental and inquisitive when it comes to dishes and flavours. And there's no other style restaurant in the world that will wrap themselves up in dishes 
and make it feel like it's completely normal to have a Korean-style barbecue mackerel followed by a Sri Lankan prawn curry and then a steamed suet pudding. You know, and we would sit there and eat those three dishes and you might even have that on a Sunday lunchtime in a pub. And it's completely normal. But it's because it's cooked beautifully. We have chefs with skill levels that are operating in pubs now that are just, they're beyond basic. They're actually doing very, very good cookery. And they're learning dishes and techniques and skill sets that are wrapped around global cuisine. And it sits in a pub so, so nicely. So 10 years has grown from these British dishes that have been about bone marrow on toast, for example, and, you know, roasted beetroots and celebrating seasonality to now. It's not just seasonality we we specialise in in British pubs. It's not just produce that we specialise in. It's actually global cuisine. And it's a really nice way of putting it all together. But for a global audience like ours, let's take a step back and look at why the pub is such a both comforting and alluring institution to have and to be able to rely on when I look at the ways that your recipes have been described. Flavour-packed, warm-hearted, joyful for everyone. There is a sense of generosity which evokes this idea, this mental image that people have of the pub, whether it's reclining in the armchair, whether it's just finding a place that always feels welcoming to people. Why does the pub hold such a an importance and charm that is so just absolutely enveloping for people. And why did you choose to go down this route in your career as well when you got into food and then eventually chose your own path? Yeah, I mean, my background, I've worked in Michelin star restaurants pretty much my whole career and my whole life. But when it came to opening my own business, which is now nearly 19 years, um, it was I wanted to create somewhere where I'd like to be on my day off and on my day off I wanted to wear jeans and trainers I don't want to dress up I don't want to, but that doesn't mean to say I've got to eat food that's not of high quality you know so in case of opening the business it was like well why can't we do great food set on a three course a la carte meal start a main dessert that's got really good produce in it looked and cared for by chefs that can cook to a complete level just because it hasn't got white linen tablecloths and an extensive huge wine list there's no reason why the food can't be great so that was the first point of call of opening the hand and flowers and going this is what we're going to do and this is what i set myself up into but my relationship and I think on in general the bigger picture of Great Britain's relationship with pubs is that they are so interwoven into the fabric of society. They're the connective tissue of so many different people's lives and places. They are social meeting places. They're hubs of society. They are spaces where people go after work for a catch-up and a pint. And what defines a pub isn't... Um, I think it has to have beer... I mean, that's first and foremost. A pub has to have beer, right? Without beer, it's not a pub, okay? So that's the one thing that it must have, beer. And you go... But from there, that beer, it also then has to have a sense of um, familiarity and a warm sense of hospitality. And you mentioned the word generosity there. All of the best chefs, all of the best restaurateurs, all of the best publicans, all of the best operators. And I think in most businesses that are relatable to food and drink in particular, the ones that are successful aren't necessarily the ones that make the most profit margin. The ones with longevity in life are the ones that operate with a sense of generosity. They're the ones that are about making sure that people have a wonderful time when they come to visit. Our world and our jobs, they are vocational. 
they're not something that's built in. They, they, they are careers and they're livelihoods and they're everything. But actually, the reason why we do them in the first place is because it's it's a passion and it's a love and it's a sense of, I, I think, connection to other human beings that you know that, that makes you go. Actually, this is what's you know this is what I, it's all about. This is where I want to be. This is where my heart belongs. And pubs sum that up better than anything else because they're so connected throughout society. And it doesn't you know everybody everybody knows what a pub is and you know and they should be completely embracing from all walks of life and for every society it doesn't every member of society it doesn't matter who you are you walk through a, into the door of a pub you should be made to feel welcome and that's what sums up a pub and that's why they're so important and that's why they're so quintessentially british that understanding of what it is your pub does have two michelin stars two questions one what makes pub food Michelin star worthy, but also, do you still use it as a space to experiment nowadays? And where do you push it forward? What does a three Michelin star pub look like? <laughs> no, I've absolutely no idea what a three star pub looks like. I think there's twenty plus pubs now with Michelin stars, and that level of cooking. Now, I can't. I've no idea really what it takes what the michelin inspector is looking for i don't know their tick box process of what they're going for however i do we have won them we've got two stars at the hand we've got one star at the coach and we have kept them for a long time and you go all right what do they look for they look for quality-led ingredients um, and they look for consistency and they'll look for a warmth of service i'm sure i know that it's always about the food but you know if somebody smiles and says hello when they come through the door that's got to be a little tick point hasn't it you know <laughs> straight away so getting the just doing hospitality correct sourcing wonderful produce and treating it with love and respect and you go actually that and doing it consistently again and again and again i think the difference between two and one stars is personality and by that what i mean is i think there's lots of incredible brilliant singular Michelin star restaurants and brilliant spaces but a lot of it do you can you instantly tell which chef has cooked that each dish I think there's a lot of um, brilliant cookery but has it does it now excel into the personality of those chefs and there's 20 25 two Michelin star spaces up and down the country and I would argue that if you put particularly in front of those chefs if you put the 25 dishes a main course of 25 dishes in front of all of those chefs without knowing who it is, I could sit there and I reckon I would get 90 to 100% right of which chef cooked which dish because there is a sense of personality and ownership that comes into that style and that particular cooking. And I think that's probably the difference that goes from one to two, but I don't really know. So we operate like a two-star Restaurant, it's just a pub. It's just the walls that are different. That's all. And you just go, actually, and with that, you still have to have that warmth of connection. And I think those are the points that were very, I think, driven from us to get to that two-star level. Three-star, I couldn't tell you what a three-star pub looks like because there isn't one. However, I could tell you what a three-star restaurant looks like, and they are exceptional. They are world-class cuisine. How do you transfer that into a pub? I wouldn't have the first clue without it then suddenly becoming slightly intimidating to people pubs are about embracing and one of the biggest thing that i love about our pub at the hand of flowers is many people come to us 
And they say it's the first experience of Michelin star dining they've ever had. And it's a two star. And they've come to us because they know it's a pub. So they know they can go, actually, it will feel quite comfortable and they get it. And if that leads them on to go and eat in another two star restaurants, one star restaurants, and going because it's, they realize that actually there's nothing to be intimidated about. It's an amazing space. And, you know, the professionalism of the staff, no matter whether it's one star, two star, three star, anywhere, should be about making people feel comfortable. I think that if we try to take a look at, that personality, the one that you can recognise in other people's dishes the moment you see them. And if you look at the book itself, which we have in front of us, and we can turn to like the Bible that it is, you can clearly see your personality pretty evidently from all these dishes. Um, And I think it's interesting that, yes, there's the comforting burgers and things that maybe you've come to expect from a pub, but also very refined dishes at the same time that do carry a sense of occasion like this skate with caper butter sauce but also i have to admit i did give it a test last night yes and i decided that i would challenge myself with the bangers and mash because i thought let's go for a real classic (laughs) yeah and i guess my question for you is how many times can you change a classic yeah, I don't think I don't think you can ever change classics. Classics are there for a reason, and they're there because you know. And 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 classics are always a produce led. They're always produce led. But there's technique that changes and develops and grows, and understanding of dishes. And you never, you don't ever not have a school day. There's always something to learn. There's always something that you can see or improve just by a tiny, tiny little percent. Even today, I learned a new thing about. Well, that might be an interesting way of making mashed potatoes boiling the potatoes with the skin on that have just got one knife cut round it, gently poaching them with the skin on. Then when the skin comes away and then peel the skin off and that way they haven't absorbed any water before you're making mash. You can do it like baking it, but I thought that was quite a nice way because when you bake it, you don't get the seasoning in the water. You don't get... so. Today I've seen, I saw a little video on social media that I thought I might have a go at that. That might be a good way of, of improving our mash by 0.01%. And if that works, great. So you can't ever change a classic because they're there. A piece of sea bass, a piece of line caught, beautiful, that south coast sea bass will always be amazing because it is an animal that swims in the sea. That's not changing, right? And how you cook it, crispy skin, like those, the simplicity. And that's the same when you look at global cuisine, you look at beautiful pasta and you look at simple dishes that come from Spain, amazing paella, or you look at, you know, there isn't anything that changes that. It's ingredient-led. And those are the things that will never, ever change. You can't change a classic, but you can learn new technique that enhances things tiny little bit by tiny little bit. In recent years, Lebanon has faced some extremely tough times. Despite this, on a springtime trip to the Middle Eastern nation, Marcus Hippie discovered that what is admirable about Lebanon's people is their positivity and determination to push through. During his trip, Marcus headed to Beirut, where he came across some of the most delicious food, impressive wines and extraordinary hospitality. The highlight, Taulet Restaurant, a small eatery founded by Monaco's friend Kamal Muzawak. The spot embodies the best of Lebanon's culinary traditions and a variety of guest chefs prepare food from different parts of the country every day. Although the restaurant had to rebuild following the 2020 blast, its new venue in the city's best food market, Souk El Tayeb, makes it a vibrant attraction for locals and tourists alike. Marcus met with Kamal Muzawak's business partner, Christina Kodzi, to find out more. Sukataya means the literally, if I translate, it means the market of good. But for us, Tayyib in, in Arabic has three meanings. 
It means tayyib good as good taste. It means tayyib as alive. This person is alive. And it also means this person is a good, good person, tayyib. So the three meanings, it's what we're trying to apply also in our, in our regular daily lives and what we're trying to also, you know, spread as a vision, you know, uh, throughout Today is throughout food, throughout you know job creation, employment of women, youth, etc., and perpetuating the tradition. This is what the farmers' market is about: perpetuate the Lebanese traditions in terms of agriculture and produce, and food. And in this restaurant, Tauli, what's what's amazing about this concept is that that you have basically different days dedicated to different parts of Lebanon and different chefs working here as well. True, it's amazing how actually rich is the culinary traditional of uh, traditions of this country and uh, every day you have a different women coming from a different area of Lebanon cooking the specific traditional local dishes of her area. And uh, so let's say Monday you will have a woman from the north cooking tr- typical traditional food from the north. The second day you have the south, the Beka, the mountain. Like today we have Nada, she's from the Beka. A very nice little village called Khirbet Anafar. So it's in West Beka, one of the most beautiful parts of Lebanon. So everything she cooked today, like we have, uh, let's say, 12 different uh, dishes on this uh, buffet menu, uh, represents part of... Uh, of her uh, traditional food, it's home-cooked food, okay? So, for example, you have traditional, uh, um, how do you say this, shish barak, I know shish barak in Lebanese, but in, uh, in English, so it's like, a, it's like dumplings filled with meat and cooked in yogurts too, and we eat it with rice, so it's very good. Yeah. She has this aubergine pate, which is aubergine eggplants, cooked with yogurt and uh, breads, like grilled uh, Lebanese bread, uh, garlic, and some uh, dried almonds on top of it. And it has to be eaten warm. You have these little, uh, what we call, um, it's dough, purslane. The dough is filled with purslane, these triangles cooked in the oven. Uh, this is like a local wild herb. So now it's the season. It's chabeze. It's like, uh, you say, hibiscus. Some wild herbs, we have difficulties finding the, their equivalent in English. But it's like she, she picks them, you know, from, from the field close to her house. And she cooks them. In, it's like a salad with uh, coriander, uh, garlic, and fresh lemon. Amazing. Very good. Here we have a raw, it's, it's raw meat but it's mixed with onion and parsley. It's also something that we eat a lot, like different kinds of raw meat. Lentil salad, a regular fatouche, which is like hummus, it's very typical. It's not specifically from her region. So we always have them here in the, on the buffet. Stuffed vine leaves with oil and uh, rice, and uh, it's very good as well. So, so I see yeah. people eating over here, so this is the community kitchen. Uh, actually, they're not eating, they're preparing boxes for, and they're putting yeah, stickers on some like uh, boxes that we fill with food that is being distributed on a daily basis to different uh, NGOs. So we produce on a daily basis to 2,000 meals here in this community kitchen. There are about 50 people working here. Now it's the end of the day almost, so they're all gone. Uh, so every day it's distributed here, 2,000 warm uh, like meals. And it's, uh, it goes to local NGOs in the neighborhood, like very vulnerable people get this food. Tell me how this community kitchen happened. You have been playing a major part in making this happen and you were one of the first organizations or companies over here that were asked to participate. Yeah, actually the community kitchen 
created after the 2020 blast, August blast in Beirut. It wasn't part of what we do. Usually we don't do like pure charity, but it was out of emergency. We started an emergency kitchen the next day after the explosion because many people like were in need and it was uh, like, you know, it was crazy at the time. And after this, for like almost months, we had to produce like 1,000, 1,500. We were supported in the beginning by the World Central Kitchen. They came to Lebanon after the blast and they actually took over a few kitchens. One of the kitchens was ours. And they asked us to produce the food and they were in charge of distributing them like everywhere in Beirut where like there was needs. Uh, unfortunately, the need is still here uh, three years later. Uh, we thought, you know, it was just an emergency. It became a permanent kitchen, and uh, we called it Matbakh al-Kil, so the, the community kitchen of, uh, of Souk al-Tayyib. And actually, the need is even more now than in 2020 because poverty has like dramatically increased in the country. And uh, so we found ourselves like actually needing to produce more and more meals. Uh, we were also supported by uh, international organizations like the German government, Alfanar, Paces, who really uh, helped us, you know, in buying equipment, etc. You said that you said that you were launching this emergency kit and you were asked to help a day after the blast, but what was your situation in that? I understand that we are in a new location. You lost your earlier location in that explosion. Yes, almost. Actually, we were about to, we were closing down. You know, we were sitting, me and my partner, you know, after the explosion and we were looking at ourselves and, you know, we we're going to, we sent everybody home. Okay, thanks God, no one got hurt. But, you know, we had a bed and breakfast, 10 rooms that was completely destroyed. Uh, our kitchen, we could save a few equipment. The equipment were okay, but, I mean, the rest was not functioning, uh, shattered glass, etc. So we were just, like, managing how to shut down. But then we received this call from Jose Andres from the World Central Kitchen who said, like, I'm coming to Lebanon. Could you help in producing meals? Because we need people who know how to cook and who can immediately, you know, produce meals and... We looked at we looked at one and another, me and, and Kamal, and we said like, okay, we can <laughs> call everybody back and uh, you know just prepare the equipment and if you we have ingredients we will cook. So we started and f- suddenly we were flooded by not only our team was preparing, we had a lot of volunteers, so women coming to help people from everywhere in Beirut. They you know put their hands together and we started producing food again and uh, that's how it happened do you think that's something that is such a lebanese thing that you kind of keep it together and look after each other definitely definitely because everything that was happening after this uh, thing the explosion was like lebanese people looking after one another of course there was a lot of international aid coming in but it wasn't from the government and everybody was there and i think this is what gives hope the fact that we just started working again and not thinking for like directly after this, uh, this this tragedy kept the hope on. Like there were people seriously in need much more than us so we can help. So there was a reason to live, you know. And this is what happened with us. You said that the situation is dire still and you, you say that the community kitchen is very much needed still. Yeah. Do you see many other sources of hope than what you just mentioned, the Lebanese mentality? <laughs> I mean, if there was no hope, I wouldn't be here, obviously. 
uh, of course there is hope there's always hope and it's more difficult to create today opportunities but every time when you have a crisis there are some opportunities but we need to look at things differently so for example ourselves we closed down a lot of you know projects that we have even a lot of outlets so we had much more many more outlets we closed down and it's okay today the development is in a different direction is like going more smaller smaller scale going back to your roots and to the communities and helping people in their community grow or supporting them not letting the youth leave because one of the tragedies is when everybody who's you know who works the working you know force of the country is leaving the country the other is very poor and then you have you know a situation that seems like desperate but you also have people who can do something and like if you keep it small scale and you work on very very targeted and focused like i'm talking hospitality because this is the area where we are active in so specifically in this sector there are things to be done there are still people living in this country who want to discover their own country what do you hope from the future and when, and what are you focusing on at the moment what are the priorities in the future uh we will we want to develop through supporting others so trying to because there are some there are funds in a place that want to be put somewhere there are people who have ideas and small projects but they don't have funds and there are people who can make it happen which is where we see ourselves as an organization we have the know-how we have the links uh to funds today you don't have banks anymore so where do if if you have a project where do you get the money from you know there's no investment like it was in the future you know people who put money and hope to have a return on investment it's not like that so if we want to keep afloat we have to bring funds from donors organizations sometimes wealthy people in their own area who are willing to support smaller scale projects and develop a network uh, across the country for uh tourism local tourism agrotourism which is what we have in our in my opinion one of the things we have preserved and we can preserve is our culinary traditions and the environment so we have to continue on doing so to preserve our country this is this is my hope for the future not to destroy our country anymore but to preserve it Marcus Hippy there with that report You're listening to the menu. Now, for many people around the world, pouring milk on your cereal in the morning doesn't feel like something too significant. But in fact, milk has a unique place in global politics, society, and culture. Earlier this year, Monocle's Sophie Monahan Coombs went along to an exhibition at the Welcome Collection in London that looked to explore our relationship with this ingredient. She filed this report. Milk's a, an extraordinary substance because it uh, is a very everyday substance that we take for granted. But if you start to shine a light on it, then you really start to see how the kind of politics of our of our country operate, how the kind of food system operates, uh, what systems govern those things, and the inequalities within those systems. Anna Bedard is one of the curators behind Milk at London's Welcome Collection. At first glance, the topic might seem a strange choice for a major exhibition of artworks and historical artefacts. 
But it quickly becomes apparent that the white liquid is a rich source of curatorial material and calcium. So a kind of key question is how has cow's milk come to be seen as so essential to a diet in the UK? Uh, what are the forces that shape the ways that we feed our infants? How has milk been used to tie ideas of health to whiteness? Um, and perhaps crucially, how uh, do we value milk and those who produce it? Around two thirds of the world's population have some difficulty digesting milk. So how did it become the staple that we see it as today? I mean, I think a key part of that, of course, is colonialism and cultural imperialism that helped to spread milk and milk drinking around the globe. And so that very much started with the kind of colonial settlers who brought uh, dairy breeds into different, uh, their kind of different parts of the empire. And these were breeds that were much higher milk yield. But it was also kind of based on a, an idea of kind of white superiority. So that the idea that British or European agricultural systems were somehow better. Um, and this very much ignored the kind of indigenous uh, use and management of the land that was in, kind of built on kind of incredible kind of knowledge of the land um, and a very kind of deep and complex uh, systems of management. And it, and it very much carried through um, as we kind of found the technologies to uh, preserve milk in different ways. So powdered milk, tinned milk, condensed milk, that very much helped to kind of, I guess, create a culture of milk drinking in other parts of the world because milk could be exported. So as I say, in the early days, it was very much about kind of British or European colonisers trying to create ways to kind of keep their own diets going in the countries that they colonised. But then it very much became about using European nutritional science to justify the kind of imposition of these practices, you know, as I say, based on an idea of superiority. Um, and of course, you know, also that was boosting the kind of the of the dairy industry in, in places like the UK and America. Drink your milk, kids. I don't want milk. Milk's for babies. Yeah, babies. Well, yeah, well, I happen to know that milk helps build... One of the interesting things for us was how in the States, the uh, United States Department of Agriculture are responsible for both the, creating the federal dietary guidelines, but they're also responsible for the health of the dairy industry. And this sort of conflict of interest seems to sort of go unnoticed. So when you think about um, government kind of funded uh, advertising campaigns like the Got Milk campaign, for example, you know, these are incredibly powerful forces that are uh, you know, encouraging people to drink milk. Got milk. And while Big Dairy understandably plays a big part in the exhibition, there are, of course, many other types of milk. But on top of almond, soy and, my preferred, oat milk, there was one particularly surprising fact about another kind of milk. I think a lot of people aren't aware that human milk is now being sold quite widely online. And that's being uh, purchased not just by parents, but also people like bodybuilders who think that it can promote muscle growth or people are buying it for fetish use or perhaps in health enthusiasts who think that it might cure health problems or boost immune systems. Um, and in the 21st century, I think we've got to start thinking about how we can regulate uh, the kind of sale of, of human milk. And that brings with it very complicated questions about how we value human milk and particularly we value those who produce it. The Welcome Collections exhibition exposes the deep complexities of the seemingly everyday substance and, spilling over into questions of gender, politics, health and colonialism, it's clear that the story of milk, or at least our relationship with milk, is far from over.
And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's a midday in San Francisco. Also, don't forget to tune into our spin-off show Food Neighborhoods for a tour of some of the world's tastiest destinations. I am Kerarimella. This program was produced by Monica Lillis. Once again, we finished this program with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Milk by Kings of Leon. She saw my comb over her hourglass body. She had problems with drinking milk and 